How we doing, y'all? You doing okay? Thank you for the woos. Appreciate it. I'll put that over there. You guys having a good week? We surviving? You thriving? You know? <laughs> I know a lot of y'all have a lot going on. And so I'm glad y'all are here. Uh, I know that this semester is doing anything but getting lighter for y'all right now, probably. So, but uh, glad you guys are here. So good to see you. If I haven't met you before, my name's Kyle. I'm the college pastor here. And just glad to have you guys at ABC tonight. Uh, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in uh, Daniel 6. Uh, we're going to look at just the first five verses of Daniel 6 tonight. Um, if you are new with us, we've been walking through a series we're calling Resilient, uh, looking at what it means to live uh, boldly in a post-Christian culture, having a resilient faith as we live in some ways as exiles in culture today. And we've been looking some at the book of Daniel. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we were in Daniel chapter one last week, and we'll be a little bit in Daniel six uh, tonight. Uh, but as we've been saying in this series, just to define the word resilient, it's not a word that we probably define a lot, but it's, it means to able to withstand difficult conditions. So we're talking about what it means to endure as a Christian in culture today. And last week we talked about even some of the defining characteristics of culture today that a guy named David Kinnaman, an author, has coined that we live in digital Babylon these days. That normally uh, we read the book of Daniel, we think about Babylon that happened thousands of years ago. But we've talked about some last week, how we live in digital Babylon today that's marked by really three things. It's marked by access to more information than ever before with less wisdom and how to deal with it. It's also marked by alienation from each other because of technology, things like that, to where we're more um, tempted in many different ways, we're more fragmented in culture in different ways. And also, thirdly, we're more skeptical of authority, we're more jaded, we're more cynical, especially when it comes to spiritual truth. And so those are all the kind of facets of digital Babylon we live in today. And so we're talking in this series about what it means to be faithful in digital Babylon as an exile in in culture, not that we're demonizing culture today, but that we're just kind of embracing what it is and how we live faithfully as Christians in it, especially looking into 2021 and, and you know, thankfully moving into 2021 out of 2020, amen, you know, but uh, how do we live faithfully in that? So that's kind of what we're doing tonight. And so last week we were in Daniel 1 and we kind of saw how Daniel was brought into this culture of Babylon that was very antagonistic or at least apathetic to his faith and how he lived boldly in it. We talked some about cultural discernment and how Daniel, you know, he didn't live under a rock in Babylon. He engaged with the culture of Babylon there, but at the same time, he was not simply conformed to the culture, but he let his identity come not from being a Babylonian or being in Babylon. He let his identity be marked by being a child of God, by being one of God's people, and he lived out of that identity in the context of Babylon. So that's kind of the story and the beginning of it that we looked at last week. So we're going to continue this uh, tonight by moving to chapter six, and I'll kind of, I'll cover some ground between those in a bit. We're going to move into chapter six tonight and talk about another way that Daniel lived as a faithful exile in Babylon, and that was through his vocation, through his job, through his work. So we're going to talk a little bit about vocation and job and work tonight, and I'll explain why that's really important in a bit. But let's do this. Let's look at the first five uh, verses of Daniel chapter six, um, and then uh, we'll get into tonight, okay? I'm in the ESV translation. It's going to be on the screen uh, as well. So it says this. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way, but I'm going to call it, call it satraps. Okay? Satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. And then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Because an excellent spirit, if you underline in your Bible, underline that. Excellent spirit was in him, 
or if you highlight in your Bible app. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find, get this, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. These, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It's an amazing statement. But let's pray, then we'll get into it tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for that song we just sang, two great songs, but especially that second one, Lord, just celebrating that we can run to you, that you are the heart surgeon that we need, the true friend that we need, Lord. We thank you for the true companion, Lord, the true um, source of our identity and fulfillment and longing that we, we find in you and the mission that we're compelled to live on because of our identity in you. So I ask that you would uh, give us uh, eyes and ears to see and hear your word tonight. Uh, help us to even think about the way that you are leading us into uh, careers and vocations and our place in the world to make a difference and how that may fit into and how our, uh, our careers are transformed by our identity as missionaries, as uh, great commissioned Christians in the world. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you're wondering kind of what's going on in Daniel 6, it seems like we've skipped a lot of ground, right? We went from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Um, we're not going to do a whole walk through the whole book of Daniel in this series, but if you're wondering what's going on in this, you know, we kind of skipped some ground. We covered some years, and so let me kind of catch you up on what's going on if you're not as familiar with history in this. So who was the guy we were dealing with last week that was king? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king of Babylon at the time when Daniel and his friends first get brought in as kind of prisoners of war in that culture. Well, this week in Daniel 6, we now have this guy named Darius. And what happens is this, is in about October of 529 BC, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire conquers Babylon, okay? So the Babylonian Empire gets conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and it becomes a new empire. So what's happened is that Daniel is now finding himself in the middle of a political transition, you know, we talk about political transitions right now in the world, in our, in our country. We're in a weird one right now, right? Um, but you can talk about other political transitions. Daniel's in an even more interesting political transition during this time, going from the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of Persia. He goes from serving under Nebuchadnezzar to now serving under uh, Darius here, hopefully. And you got to wonder, like, what, what is Daniel thinking? He's thinking, okay, so I used to serve under this one guy. He's been taken over. Am I even going to have a job anymore? Am I even going to be able to, like, to live anymore? Are they going like, to come in and, like, you know, kill me to kind of, you know, clean house. That doesn't happen, but you got to imagine kind of what he's going through. And we don't know all the details of what happened in this story, but we do know this, that if you look at Daniel 6, we see that he comes in the kingdom, he serves incredibly well under Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that even as this transition happened to King Darius, he apparently does really well there. Because if you look in Daniel 6, what happens? That Darius in the Medo-Persian Empire was di different politically than Babylon. Babylon was like, um, King Nebuchadnezzar was the guy. He was a tyrant. His word was law no matter what. The Medo-Persian Empire was different. It was a little bit more of a democracy. The law was more important than the king. And so what Darius does, or sorry, yeah, what he does here is he, he set up, sets up 120 administrators and um, all these people in the kingdom to collect taxes and to kind of enforce the law. But then he sets three people up over the 120. And so he has like a system of accountability here, which makes sense. And what happens is Daniel becomes one of these high officials, so these three guys over the rest of the government officials in all of the kingdom, which is, this is a pretty massive kingdom. I don't know a lot about the kingdom of Babylon and Medo-Persia in terms of land, but it was a massive thing. You read about it, you learn about it in history a lot. 
So Daniel is succeeding succeeding so well. It's a combination of excelling and succeeding. He's succeeding so well in his uh, position here, and it's pretty amazing. And I love what verse 3 says. It says, I told you to underline it. Daniel 6.3 says that an excellent spirit was in him, which I think is really interesting because you could really take that one of two ways. Number one, you could think this is, you know, the Bible talking about God giving Daniel the spirit of like prophecy, the spirit of interpreting dreams, that there's an excellent spirit of that in him. And that would be absolutely right. We see a lot of that. We'll talk about that in a second. But another way to think about it that the, the, the Hebrew, right, so the Aramaic, gives room for is not only is it a uh, spirit of prophecy interpretation, you could also call it a spirit of excellence, which normally when we say spirit of excellence, right, we mean someone who's just good at something. They have a high standard of work, high quality of work. The same phrase could be interpreted from that text. So we also could say that not only did he have a, a excellent spirit in him of interpretation of dreams from the Lord, but also that Daniel has a spirit of excellence, which means he's really good at his job. He's really uh, succeeding so well in that. And if you look at all the, the, the chapters between Daniel 1 that we were in last week and Daniel 6 this week, you see over and over again, this is true in Daniel's life, that he took his career, his job, and responsibility in Babylon very seriously. Just consider Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He can't figure out what it means, and he's trying to figure it out, so he asks his magicians, his philosophers, to interpret it for him. But the one thing is he doesn't tell them what the dream is. He's like, yeah, if you guys are really smart enough, you'll, you'll be able to figure out what my dream is and interpret it. Good luck with that, right? But that's what he does. And then he's really mad that none of them can tell him what the dream is. And so eventually he says, all right, I'm going to kill every one of y'all. This tells you a little bit about what, what kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was. He says, I'm going to kill every one of my philosophers, my magicians, all my people who are in that business. I'm going to kill them all, which included Daniel. And so Daniel gets worried he's about to be killed. And he, in his, you know, in his negotiation, says, you know what? Hey, let me talk to Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, hey, give me a night to pray about it. I'll come back tomorrow, give you the dream, give you the interpretation. God reveals to Daniel in the night what the dream is. He interprets it. It's an amazing thing. But in that, Daniel is very quick, if you read Daniel 2, to give God all the credit for what uh, the dream means and even knowing the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar responds in chapter 2. He says this. This is a pagan king, by the way. This is not a Jew or a Christian. Nebuchadnezzar says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. So even in that situation, Daniel is a witness for God. Nebuchadnezzar probably doesn't become a follower of Yahweh in that moment because he becomes pretty terrible in the next chapter, but he has this encounter with God in some way. You go to chapter three, that's the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego burning uh, the fire furnace. Daniel's not in that chapter, but you go to chapter four, we see Daniel again. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and Daniel also interprets it. And uh, uh, God provides the interpretation ultimately, and Nebuchadnezzar again is amazed. And we, we begin to get this idea that Daniel is like incredibly respected by Nebuchadnezzar. It almost seems like Nebuchadnezzar's like, all right, Daniel's kind of the top dog of this. If I really get in a pinch, he's the one I'm going to over all the rest of y'all who are this job. And Daniel, Dan, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar has this huge respect for Daniel's God-given ability to interpret dreams. But we get the idea even that Nebuchadnezzar just respects the wisdom and the posture of Daniel in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar knows what Daniel stands for. He knows that he's not caving in to the uh, polytheism, the paganism of Babylon. He's very bold about what he believes, but yet he's wise in the way he engages with Nebuchadnezzar and the culture. And we get, that, gets that, we get this idea that Nebuchadnezzar really respects that, how he's bold in his faith, but yet also engages wisely in the culture and in his own convictions. Then you go to chapter five, 
We see in chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, this guy named Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, that's, David, that's Daniel's Assyrian name, Babylonian name, excuse me. But Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's successor. And what he does is this, he takes the throne and he wants to throw a big party for taking the throne. So what he does is he goes and he gets a lot of the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Whenever the uh, Babylonians took over Israel, they took a lot of the stuff out of the temple and brought it with them. So like there were cups, there were all kinds of things. So, so Belshazzar takes some of this stuff and uses it as like, you know, you know, the red solo cups for the party, you know, essentially for his, uh, his arrival to the throne. And God is obviously not very happy about that because that stuff is very dedicated to the Lord in the temple. So what happens is this. It's a really weird story. You may have like seen some kind of flannel graph, you know, kids video about it. I remember seeing one that really gave me nightmares for years um, about this. But like when, when I was a kid, I watched a cartoon about it. But this, this big human finger appears and starts writing on the wall. That'll give you nightmares, right? This big finger starts writing on the wall and writes this message that, the, that Bel, Belshazzar can't interpret. He doesn't know what it means. So he knows about Daniel and his skills in interpreting stuff. He gets him to come over. And Daniel, I love what he says. He basically says this. He's like, yep, so God's gonna judge you and you're gonna die and another guy's gonna come in and take your place. And he's like, all right, peace. And he walks away. That's essentially what Daniel does. It's, it's amazing. I love it. And that's literally what happens. And you can go in history and see that literally right after he, not long after he takes the throne, the Babylonian empire gets taken over by the Medo-Persian empire and the, the Bel- Belshazzar gets killed by some assassins and it's done. It's, it's amazing. I love how that fits together in history. So that's what happens. So over and over again, we see Daniel, the whole point of me recapping all that is that over and over again, Daniel is leveraging his position in Babylon not for his own benefit, essentially, but he's leveraging it really for the glory of God and to have influence in culture for the Lord. Over and over again, we see him speaking truth to pagan leadership and glorifying God in the midst of this. And he used his job seriously as a responsibility and opportunity to do these kind of things. And the question is, why, why would Daniel do this? Because you think about Babylon, you think about the Jews, like Babylon had been brutal to the Jews, right? They came in, they took over their country, they killed many, many of their people, they took many of their high up people, their leaders and their influencers, they took them away to Babylon. Babylon had been nothing but evil to the Jews, but yet Daniel responds in many ways with respect and honor to the culture in Babylon, not in complete rejection of it. Why is he doing this? Well, I think the main reason is because Daniel knew that the primary way he could have influence in Babylon for God's glory was through the position he'd been given, through his responsibility, really through his work, through his job. And Daniel, I think, remembered the prophecy that God spoke through Jeremiah. We mentioned this briefly last week, but it says in Daniel 9 that that Daniel literally was studying the book of Jeremiah while he was in exile, trying to learn and make sense of the time and the world he was in. And you got to think that he probably read things like Jeremiah 29. It's going to be on the screen, but Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says this. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is his message. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Basically, Jeremiah is saying, listen, you're going to be in Babylon for a while. So, you know, make it your home. You know, don't think you're only going to be there for a couple of years and go back. Like, you know, integrate, not integrate into the culture, but, you know, make a home there. You know, marry, have kids, you know, plant gardens and things that are going to benefit future generations, not just your generation make it a home. And then he goes there at the last verse to say, but seek the welfare. If, you, if you're looking at that in your Bible, circle that. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that's an amazing verse, and I'll go and give you a preview. Like This is going to come up again in my sermon Sunday morning, so you'll hear it twice a little bit because it fits into our Romans 12 text. But it's amazing because Jeremiah says to seek the welfare of Babylon, all right? Which is an amazing thing considering that, you know, the Babylon was the one that destroyed the Jews' home, killed their people, all this kind of stuff. And just imagine, think, think about being a Jew in Babylon during that time. How are you going to feel about Babylon? Your natural instinct is going to be what? To be bitter against them, to hate them, to want to do everything you can to isolate yourself away from Babylonian culture, to kind of just be, you know, away from them because of what they've done to your people. Like just imagine how the, the Jews would probably naturally feel about Babylon. But that's not how God commands them to live. Instead, God, through Jeremiah, commands them to seek the welfare of the Babylonians, to seek the welfare of the city, because in their welfare, the city will find its welfare. And it's interesting because if you do like a study in that word welfare, I didn't know this till today, but that word welfare is in Hebrew, the word shalom. You may have heard that before. It comes up a lot like in Hebrew stuff, but the word shalom is the word peace. But peace, you know, we think of peace, we think of absence of conflict, right? Like things are at peace when there's not a war happening, there's not conflict happening. And that's true in the biblical word shalom. But the biblical word, the Hebrew word shalom, has so much more deep meaning than just, you know, hey, don't fight the Babylonians, don't rebel against them, you know, don't don't cause conflict. No, it means a lot more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because shalom is deeply rich in meaning. It means more than just peace. It means this, it means wholeness. It means completeness. It means prosperity. It means goodness. You know, shalom is a picture of the way that life should be. It's a picture of the good life, whatever that is in your mind. Shalom is a picture of society that's living out its God-ordained design to be a, to be a place where people flourish, where, people, where everyone is treated fairly, where everyone is working for the benefit of other people. Shalom is a place where people don't seek to live apart from God, but seek to integrate their lives fully with God, both in their job, their family, their personal life, everything. It's fully integrated. It's, it's whole. It's complete. It's a place where there is no injustice. There's no suffering. Shalom is a beautiful picture of the world, the way God wants it to be, in the, in the way that God designed it to be. And we know that in Ephesians 2, that New Testament would tell us that Jesus is our peace, that's not the word shalom, it's Greek, it's just the Greek equivalent, which is irene, which where we get the word, the name Irene, if anybody knows an ant named Irene or something. Uh, but Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is our peace because in our sin, we know that we're separated from God. There's not peace between us and God. There's this separation in our sin, that there's a brokenness, there's a fracture in our relationship with God. But it's only through us repenting and believing in Christ and his finished work on the cross in our place that we can have a restored, a whole, a complete relationship with God. But we also know that God is working toward a ultimate shalom in the world, that right now we can have peace with God through faith in Christ. But ultimately, true shalom, true peace, wholeness isn't going to happen in the world until Christ comes back one day to make everything new, until the new creation is here. Because the new heaven and the new earth is going to be a place of complete shalom. But the thing is here, God calls the Jews in Babylon to work for the shalom, the welfare, the peace, the well-being of Babylon, the people that were holding them captive. He tells them to work for the shalom of them as long as God had them there. Why? Like, Why would he tell them to do that? Well, I think the reason is because as they sought the welfare of this city, they would provide an incredible witness to the God they served, the God 
who was the true God in, in the midst of all the gods in Babylon. He was the true God, the God of love, the God of true goodness. Because as they lived in this way in pagan Babylon, they would provide a window into the kind of life that God has designed for us, a real life of wholeness, not this life of idolatry and debauchery that many of the Babylonians lived, but a life of wholeness, a life of goodness. And also they went to provide a window into the life God designed for us. They provide a witness to the God they served. They provide a witness of the kind of love that this God is, the God that would love even his enemies and call his followers to also love his enemies in the way that the Jews would love the Babylonians. So for us, you know, like the Jews in exile, as we live in digital Babylon, we also should seek the welfare of the places that we live. We should seek the welfare of the campus. We should seek the welfare of the city, of our nation, of the world. But even specifically our nation and our local place, because you're in Tuscaloosa for a reason. That whether you think you got to choose to come to Tuscaloosa and go to the University of Alabama, in some ways you did choose, but ultimately God knew where you'd end up, right? God knew that in fall 2020, you'd be in Tuscaloosa, and God has a purpose for you in this specific place and time to be about the welfare of this campus, of the city, of this nation. And so we got to be very careful and intentional to look and see the ways that God wants to use us in that. And as we see here in the life of Daniel, I think the main way that we see that he seeks the welfare of the city and the way he influences other people is through his work, is through his career. And I know that a lot of y'all aren't working in anything more than maybe a part-time job right now, but I think it's very important as you're in a season of preparation for a career, hopefully you're in college to get a full-time job and stuff, right? <laughs> Amen, hopefully. Um, and so in this season of preparation, I think it's really important for you guys to think biblically about what it means to have a career, what it means to have a vocation, to have a calling, whatever you want to call it. Because honestly, in the church, we have a very anemic understanding of what it means to work, what it means to have a career, what it means to have a vocation. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit tonight about uh, a biblical understanding of work and, and why that leads us and enables us and equips us to live faithful in exile, okay? Maybe not the, the talk you thought you were getting tonight, but I think it's very important. So I'm going to give you three things tonight just talking about work and how it's essential for us to be faithful in exile, okay? So the first is this. The first is that work is created by God. That work is made by God. So just consider the creation story in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1.28, it's on the screen. It says this, and God blessed them, them being Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Go down to verse uh, 15 of chapter two says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So if you know much about the biblical story, Genesis three is where sin enters the world, Right? But yet in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in creation, we see that already in the beginning, God is giving Adam and Eve what? Work to do. He's giving them work to do. He's giving them work to fill the earth and subdue it, to work it and to keep it. And that word subdue in the Hebrew means uh, like not to oppress, but it means to take the natural resources of something, to take it and to fasten it and shape it into something beautiful and useful in the world. It's to cultivate the world. And so that's the vocational calling of really, honestly, every person in the world. Every human being, because they're made of the image of God, has the calling to fill the earth and subdue it, to work it, and to keep it. It's been fractured by sin, but we all have that calling in the world. And so why does that matter? This isn't just empty theology. Why does it matter? It means this. It means that work is not evil. <laughs> work is not a, uh, you know, it's something you just kind of endure in life to make money and to have something to do. But that work is something that has been given to us by God. That work is a good gift that God 
has given us. And here's the thing, so much so that we're gonna work even in eternity, that there's gonna be work in heaven, if you will. If you go to Revelation 21, you'll see there that it describes a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven to be in the new creation. If you read Romans and how Paul talks about the creation groaning to be restored to its former glory, we get this idea that the biblical picture of heaven is not like clouds and harps and this kind of singing in this eternal worship service. There'll be lots of worship in heaven and lots of singing, but it won't be just that, but that the biblical picture of heaven is a perfectly restored creation. It's like the Garden of Eden, but a million times better. You think about the things that God had Adam and Eve doing back then, in some ways it will will be similar for us, that we'll have work to do in the new creation. Now, I don't know what all that means. I can't give you a lot of examples of that, you know, but I have to imagine it's going to be some kind of perfected version of what we do now, you know, that we're going to be able to do things like create beauty through art and create beauty through creative arts, to make new discoveries through scientific research to create new opportunities through things like business and entrepreneurship. All those kind of things I believe will be in the new creation in some way. I can't give you a lot of details on it, but I think it's there because that's really core of part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So work is not this kind of thing we just endure in life and then we kind of get through it when we die. But no, work is something God has given us for our good ultimately. So we have to think Christianly about our work, about our career, about our calling, about your major, things like that. These things aren't separated. Like, I got my church Christian life and I got my major and my work life. No, those are not separated by any means, but they should be integrated because God has given us work for our good and to be used to reflect him in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that yes, God created work, but secondly, work is broken by sin. All right, if you go to Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, It says this, this is after Adam and Eve rebel against God, they eat the fruit, sin enters the world. God is giving kind of some some curses over, uh, over them and over the creation because of sin. This is what God says to Adam. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what God is saying there is that from now on, work is not going to be something that's a lot of fun for you, Adam. It may have been a way that you were more connected to me, and it was this awesome, enjoyable, perfect thing, but now work is going to be rough. That like he says, by the sweat of your your face, you will eat bread. That now, because of sin, Work is many times frustrating. That because of sin, work now can be hard. It can be frustrating. It can be tiring. You know, but the thing is, work is not inherently evil, but it's because we've been broken by sin. It's because the world has been broken by sin by our turning away from God. That's the reason work is the way it is now. And now our bodies, you know, they get worn out from work and we get tired. I'm 33. I get way more worn out and it takes me more days to recover from like... (laughs) cutting the grass or something, you know, than it used to when I was 23, all right? Like, I, I, we got pine cones in our yard all the time. I pick them up, and I regret it for, like, two days. It didn't happen when I was 10 years ago, okay? Like, you, you get older, and things happen, and it's, 
It's not fun, okay? Then you have a kid and it just, you never sleep and it gets worse, okay? So, but having a kid is great, all right? So, you know, but, you know, there's that. Our bodies get tired from work, right? You know, our jobs, if we're honest, they can be annoying sometimes. They can be boring. They can be frustrating. We, we work with people who are annoying or boring or frustrating. You know, sometimes it can be difficult. And even the careers that you, you plan out, you know, you're like 16, you're planning out your, your life's dreams, right? Even the careers we plan out, you know, the ones we want to be successful in, even those can leave us unsatisfied. They can leave us disappointed, frustrated, or even devastated if, if our plan doesn't work out in the way we hoped it to, or if we, we get the job and then we lose it. You know, so many things can go wrong when it comes to our work and our career. And that's because of the brokenness of sin in the world. And because of that, there's two ditches we can fall into when it comes to thinking about our job and our career and our focus in life. There's one ditch over here that is we can be, we can make work an idol, I-D-O-L. Over here, there's we can be idle in our work, I-D-L-E. We can be, make work an idol or we can be idle in our work. There's two opposite sides that are both wrong that we can fall into. Let's talk about them for a second. So over here, we can make work an idol by making our career like this ultimate place of satisfaction and meaning. We try to find our identity in our work. Because the truth is we're all wired to make something ultimate. We're all wired to worship something. And for many people... The temptation is to make work in your career and success the most ultimate thing in your life. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying work. I hope every one of y'all has a job that you deeply enjoy and love. You know, but if our work becomes something that we love more than Christ, it's only going to hurt us in the end. It's only going to come up short compared to Jesus. So if we look for our jobs to find ultimate meaning, if we look to our work to, f- to fill like all of our emotional needs, if we look to our job to, prov- to provide our ultimate purpose in life, then here's the thing, like any other thing we do with that, it's going to let us down unless it's Jesus. If you make your marriage ultimate in your life, it's going to let you down unless you are finding your satisfaction in Christ first. If you look to your kids to find your purpose and meaning, they're going to let you down unless you find it first in Jesus. And our jobs are the same way, that if we try to look to those for our ultimate purpose in life, it's going to let us down because those things can never bear the weight of that fulfillment. They can never bear the weight of that kind of thing because we weren't made to find our identity in our jobs, only in Jesus so, you know, if you find yourself obsessed with success, if you find yourself obsessed with getting ahead or making a name for yourself, all the while you're neglecting your friends, you're neglecting your family, you're neglecting your church, maybe even neglecting your own mental and spiritual and emotional health. If you find yourself doing all those things, you're probably making work an idol and you got to start thinking differently about your job. And this isn't applied just when you graduate and get a job, this can apply to now. This can apply to you in your major right now. I used to struggle hardcore with really finding my identity in my GPA. I was like kind of one of those type A kind of people that just really love to get the 4.0 each semester. And I was kind of borderline obsessed with it. And it really took a huge toll on my life for a while until God really had to do a hard work in my life. Actually, I had to go to the hospital one time because I had ulcers that I had developed because of all the stress I was putting on myself. I never gone to the hospital until I had this t- terrible pain, went there. They said, yeah, you've got ulcers. You've been worrying too much about school. <laughs> I'm like, that'll, that'll really wake you up in terms of the way you're stressing, right? And so... You know, I've struggled with this. You know, I have a workaholic tendency even in myself, even in ministry. And so I get this struggle, but we have to be careful about it because it will destroy us if we let it. So that's one side, making work an idol, I-D-O-L, but other other side is being idle, I-D-L-E, in our work. You know, the opposite side is that we can be idle in our work. And so this is when we feel that our work really doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. We'll just kind of put the minimum amount of work we can in so we don't get fired. You know, I'm just here so I don't get fined kind of thing, right? You know, like we put in the minimum amount of work to get by. 
You know, or maybe we get the wrong idea of work. We think that, you know, all that really matters is what we do for church. So I'll work my job so I can give to the church. I'll work my job so I can go and volunteer at the church. And that stuff matters. But my job doesn't. My job is where I make my money and kind of spend my time to, to get by. That's an unhelpful way to think about work as well. Because consider Colossians 3, 23, 24. We hear this all the time, but it's an incredibly important verse. Because in it, Paul is talking to bond servants. And bond servants definitely had way less freedom and way less privilege than we do in our work. But Paul says even to them, he says that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So his point here is that we shouldn't just begrudgingly do our jobs, you know, just to save face or just to make money, but know that in any of our work, All of our work matters because ultimately we don't work for a boss. We don't work for a company. Ultimately we do, but we don't work ultimately for them. But ultimately we work for King Jesus and we work to honor him. We don't work just to simply honor a supervisor or a boss that we work to honor the Lord. And that will transform the way you do your job if you let it sink in to your heart and mind. Okay, that's number two. Number three is this, is that work can be incredibly meaningful for Christians. Because the truth is this, that no matter what you do, you know, no matter if you land your dream job or you end up working a job that you're not honestly very excited about, I've done both those. I taught ninth graders for a bit. That was not my dream job for a bit. Some of y'all, that's your dream job. <laughs> Teaching algebra to ninth graders was not my dream job. You know, I, I did that for a bit. I've done a bunch of random things. You know, but no matter where you end up, no matter what kind of job you have, know this, that if you're a Christian, your job has inherent purpose and meaning, not because of the job, but because of who you're doing it for. That ultimately any job for a Christian has inherent purpose and meaning because ultimately you're doing it for King Jesus. And that means that any amount of work, any job can be an act of worship. It's all about our perspective, right? It's not about the job. Because even when our jobs are difficult, we can know that our work is one of the many ways that God sanctifies us, that he shapes us more into Christ. It's one of the many ways that God develops our character. Lord knows that, you know, we grow in character a lot through difficult work sometimes. But also work is one of the ways that God teaches us to love him more and to love our neighbor better. That work is this profound tool in our life that God uses to do those things. And God wants us to view our work not as just a way to pass the time or a necessary evil in life. But no, he wants us to view our work as a way to increase the welfare of society and to be a witness for Jesus. To increase the welfare of society and be a witness for Christ. Because your job, your career, whatever you're feeling called to in life, or even if you're still figuring that out, Your job and career is a way for you to obey God's call in Genesis, to subdue the earth and to create more order, create more beauty in the world and in society. You know, it may take some creative thinking for you sometimes to think about this, but honestly, every job except for ones that are sinful, you know, like my class example, selling meth to third graders in your backyard, you know, maybe maybe besides jobs like that, they're like sinful, you know, besides those, every job, you know, has its ways that you can say, you know what, I'm creating something good in the world, I'm offering a good service, I'm offering something meaningful to society, even something as simple as, you know, working at a fast food restaurant, serving up some fried chicken, which praise God for food sacrifice, you know, but like even that, you're providing food to people, you know, you're providing a necessary thing. That's a meaningful thing. People got to eat. You need to provide some awesome chicken, okay? So like that even is meaningful if you think about it the right way. And so your job then is a way to be a, uh, to work for the welfare of society, but also it's a way to be a witness for Christ. You know, both as, yes, you share the gospel at your job, obviously, 
but also just honestly being a good employee is a great way to be a witness for Jesus. Think about Daniel, that Daniel was a powerful witness for God in, in his work. You know, I love how they even say it here in, a, it was verse four and five, I think of Daniel six. He was such a powerful witness that these guys said this about him. Some of his coworkers, they're looking for ways to complain about him. They're looking for ways to attack him. And all his coworkers, coworkers, yeah, coworkers can say is this, is that we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And that a crazy statement that they, they couldn't find any other way to complain about Daniel besides his faith. Like, I wish people could say that about me, right? That we can't find any other way to critique him besides he's a follower of Christ and we're not, we don't like that. But that's what they said about Daniel, that we only can find one complaint and it's in the connection to the law of his God. That's how powerful of a witness Daniel was. Daniel's one of the few characters in the Bible that never really has a flaw in his story. He was, he was very much a sinful man. He was not perfect. But in his story, how he's told, he doesn't have any flaws in the story. All right? So may that be true for us. It's, that's a really tremendous challenge to us. So what all this means is this, is that we need to be, as Christians, people who engage in what we can call vocational discipleship. I use that word at the top of the page tonight. We can be engaged in vocational discipleship. David Kinneman, who um, is uh, the head of Barner Research, he defines vocational discipleship as this. It is knowing and living God's calling, understanding what we are made to do, especially in the arena of work, and right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. I love that definition. Because what this means is that we need more Christian engineers. We need more Christian lawyers, more Christian teachers, nurses, firefighters. We even need more Christian politicians, believe it or not. And we need more Christians in all these kind of things. People who understand their calling and career as a platform for welfare and for witness. And who want to live boldly in the world for God's glory. You know, sometimes I get asked by people, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. So in the church, we sometimes think that being a pastor and a missionary, that's like the, the, the top dog, like the, the Marines of the Christian life, right? You're a pastor or a missionary. You're like up here, the, the Navy SEAL, you know, and then everything else is kind of down here. You're kind of just doing your thing. And that's not true at all. Now, honestly, in ministry, in some ways, I'm more separated from the normal world than you guys are. That J.D. Greer says that when he entered ministry as a pastor, he left, he, he left like much ministry because he left the workplace, he left the workforce. So now his job and my job as a pastor, as Ephesians 4 would say, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That the people that have the most opportunities for ministry, honestly, day to day, are people who are just out there working normal jobs. That is the mission field that is so ripe. And it's harder for me <laughs> to get out there and be around non-Christians than it is for you because I work at the church. You guys don't. And so there's so many opportunities in that if we take this seriously. And as you get older, as you see your career as a place to be a witness, it just gets better and better. So we need people who will view their workplace and their work, you know, not just as a place to share the gospel, as awesome as it is, and you should do that, but view it not just as a place to share the gospel, but as a way to improve society, to bless people, to love their neighbor, and to be a witness for the goodness of God, to view even what they do in their work as a way to worship the Lord. So what this means then is that for you, in a time of preparation as a student, that you want to take your time preparing and studying your degree seriously. That your school, your classes, they're not kind of just you buying your time to move on to the next thing in life. Your, your classes are not separated from your faith, but that your faith can and should be engaged deeply with your studies in some way, depending on what you're studying. Because honestly, if you're a college student in America, if you're studying at a university like UA, you're globally, you're in the top 1% of the world. 
if you're at a university like this. You're in the top 1% of the world. And that means that God has blessed you to be a blessing. That the education you're getting right now, the studies you're getting to do, the place you're getting to study, that God is blessing you to turn around and be a blessing to the world. So the question you gotta ask is, are you leveraging your education? Are you leveraging your classes, your major, your plans? Are you leveraging that to be the best influence for the gospel that you possibly can? You know, the, the classes you go to right now, the job you work, if you're working right now, the, the inter, internships you're planning to go and do, all those kind of things, like Daniel, they are platforms for you to be a witness for Jesus. So, and not just in the sense of just share the gospel with your coworkers, yes, but to be a witness for Christ in the way you do that job with excellence and serve the Lord and worship him in it. So, and even on top of that, one way to grow in this that's really helpful is to be mentored by a Christian who's in your field. We got lots of people here at the church who do things like teach. They're in law, they're um, engineers, all kinds of things like that. If you would ever like to be mentored by somebody who's you know, older, who's working in the field you're interested in, I'd love to get you connected. Some of them, uh, Abigail Reynolds was mentored by Dan Turner, one of our uh, guys here at the church. He, he was my professor in college for highway design and civil engineering. He mentored her some in her uh, career and her choice of civil engineering. And, so, and there's all kinds of opportunities we have here to, for you to get exposed to Christians in your field that you want to study to learn how to be not just better at that job, which is great, but to be better as a Christian in that job. So I want to encourage you to consider that. I'd love to help you get connected with people if you haven't. Um, but the last thing, and then we'll wrap up, is this, and we'll discuss, is that not only is mentoring good, not only is viewing your workplace as a, you know, as a way to honor the Lord good, but lastly, what if you viewed your future career as a platform for missions? as a platform for getting the gospel to places it hasn't gone yet. As a, as a UA grad, you're going to have opportunities that many people don't have to get jobs to different places all over the country, all over the world. So what if instead of maybe looking for the job that's the most convenient for like family or you know, friends and things like that, what if instead of looking for the convenient location, what if instead when you got a, a job after or when you graduate, you instead looked to work a job to start your career in a place that's strategic for the gospel, in a place where there maybe aren't many Christians, in a place where there aren't many churches. You know, what if you chose to start your career in a strategic place for the gospel, a strategic place for the Great Commission? Because there are so many opportunities these days to do this. There's a really great one now that the IMB, International Mission Board, and, and Summit Church, they've started this thing called the Go-To Initiative the go-to movement. I think there's a website on here you can go to, but it's go2years.net, I think is on there. Maybe it's on the screen, but maybe it'll pop up, maybe it won't, but it's go2years.net. But I want to encourage you, think about this, like graduation may be next semester, it may be a ways away for you, but consider this, as you get closer to graduation, what if instead of just kind of taking the most convenient job, you took the most strategic job for the gospel? that you maybe got a job in you know, the Pacific Northwest, a job in urban Canada, you, know, you got a job somewhere else you know, in a Seattle, you know, in a New York City, someplace like that, where there aren't as many Christians, aren't, many, aren't as many churches. You could be part of a church plant. You could be part of some mission work, and you could leverage your career as a tool to get you a place to be an even greater witness for Christ. That's a real thing that thousands upon thousands of college students are beginning to do every year. So I encourage you guys, if you haven't, to think about that and to check out that website. It's on your paper. It's go2years.net. Um, there's lots of great resources on there about ways to think about using your job, your career, your calling as a way to fulfill the Great Commission and to be a more strategic Christian. This table we talk about over here with mission stuff, 
also has things on there. There's a whole bunch of pamphlets about ways that you can be on mission as an engineer, as a nurse, as a teacher, as an entrepreneur, all stuff over there. Like I said, if you, if you want to pack it, grab one, take it with you. We've got plenty of them. But, but don't think that your job, that your career, that your, your major is in any way separated and different in, in a different category than your faith. That God in no way wants us to view it that way. He wants us to view our major as a way that it's integrated into our faith and that way that we can live on mission for Christ, where we can be a witness for Christ, we can live for the welfare of society, all right? So with that, I want to pray for us, and then there's three questions you get to discuss at your table. I'll give you guys about 10 minutes-ish to do that, and then uh, we'll, I'll come back up and we'll wrap up tonight, okay? So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you that you have blessed us with the gift of work. Uh, I know many times it may not feel like a blessing, that it can be a, a source of burden and frustration, but you really have given it to us, Lord, as a way to, um, to grow, to, to learn to love you more, to love other people better a way that we can be a witness, we can live for the welfare of society. And I pray you would help all of us to view, um, to view work in a more biblical lens even tonight. I pray for these students that maybe they'd never thought much about how their faith and their job and their future career fit together. I pray you'd open their eyes wider to think about how they fit together, how you may be calling them to leverage their major, to leverage their career as a way to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, to get the gospel to places that it is not easily accessible. That maybe from this group tonight that we have five, six, seven, maybe 10 students who give their first two years after college to go and live somewhere strategic and work somewhere strategic for the gospel, Lord, because it's worth it and you want to use us if we simply make ourselves available. Lord, I pray you would guide our discussion tonight. We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.